Welcome again. My name is Jason Dexter. It's a pleasure to be with you, and today we are continuing our study of the book of Revelation. We're studying Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 14 and 15 are a transition between the trumpet judgments and the last of the seven judgments. So we've seen the seven seal judgments and the seven trumpet judgments, and upcoming very soon is the seven bowl judgment. So here is a tribulation giving us a bit of the the background and showing us what's happening behind the scenes. Uh, If this were a movie, then this would be something like the director's cut, where you hear information from behind the scenes about what's going on and what comes into what is going on next. So let's go ahead and start reading Revelation 15. We'll read it in two parts as we discuss it. The first part is in verse 1 through 4 and is about the song of the saints. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass, mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So here John is given a vision of the next step of God's plan. Seven more judgments are going to be poured out as we will see as we go through this chapter. And it says that with these, it says that these are the last, and with them the wrath of God is revealed. One of the main purposes of the tribulation is for God to pour out his righteous judgment on a world that will be crazed with sin and rebellion. Now, by this point, we've already seen 14 judgments sent upon the earth. Now the end is nearing very, very quickly, coming to the end credit scene, to the very end of this story. Now, after these final seven, then that step of God's plan will be finished and Jesus will then return. The wrath of God. God is good and God is righteous, but he is not tolerant of sin. In the 21st century, people often don't like to talk about God's wrath, but it reminds us that he is not tolerant of sin and that he is just. Now in the Chronicles of Narnia series, C.S. Lewis describes Aslan, the lion who represents Christ in that series. And he, he writes, Aslan is a good lion, but he is not a tame lion. Our God is good, kind, loving, merciful, gracious, patient. But that doesn't mean that he won't punish evildoers. I think if you've been following along in this book of Revelation, you see very, very clearly what God thinks of sin and what God thinks of those who worship Satan and rebel against him. We see God's mercy again and again. He sends out his message. Just in chapter 14, we saw this message was delivered by angelic decree as angels were sent from God to literally fly around the earth and make that message known so that everybody would hear it and would be without excuse. 
God's mercy is there. Revelation 11, we saw the two witnesses who witnessed of God to the world and encouraged the world to repent. And we've seen the 144,000 who are sealed by God. And we've seen the result of their gospel sharing as they are the first fruits. And then many, many others come into God's kingdom through their efforts. These supernatural signs in Revelation are meant to wake up a world that is hardened by sin and turn them into repentance. You can imagine a person who has flatlined and they use the machine to charge it and boom, pump electricity through that heart. And when the first jolt doesn't wake them up, then they use more power and more power to try to wake up that person. That is something like these 21 judgments, which are continually escalating from the seal judgments to the trumpet judgments, and now very soon to the bull judgments. So yes, they're God's wrath and judgment against sin, but at the same time, they're God's mercy because through these judgments, God shows people, this is like a taste of hell. This is what is coming if you don't repent. Imagine if at the very beginning when a teenager starts smoking, a doctor could enable that teenager to feel 60 years later what his lungs will be like when his lungs are filling up with fluid due to lung cancer and how he would choke himself to death. If the doctor were able to give that teenager who's just starting smoking just a taste for one minute or two minutes to feel where that smoking is going to lead, perhaps, perhaps that would change his direction. Though, of course, we know in many times it doesn't. But this is what God is doing in the book of Revelation. And the scope of these judgments also shows us how much our Lord hates sin. Make no mistake, he is angry. Repeated in willful rebellion against his good commands is not met with silence. He offered the world a carrot many times. But if they won't accept the carrot, then it's going to be a stick. We see a verse about this in Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's righteousness is, God's wrath is only against the unrighteous and the ungodly. If someone repents and takes God's mercy, then the wrath will not be against them. So this wrath is not necessary. It's not inevitable for any specific person. John 3.36, whoops, sorry, wrong passage. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Lord has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains only on the one who does not believe in and obey the Son. So salvation is available. And everyone will have gotten the message through the witnesses, the two, the 144,000, the angelic messengers. God put his message out. If anyone is facing that punishment in the end, they have only themselves to blame. Now, it says that this is going to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. This is what John saw up in heaven. He says what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. In Revelation 4, 6, he describes it as well, and he also mentions crystal. Now, he's unable to describe this amazing sight perfectly because he'd never seen anything like it before. It didn't match any, any experience he'd ever had or anything he'd ever seen on this earth. So he uses qualifiers like appeared. That was the best he could do 
with his limited language. Now, his very description seems to contradict itself. He says it's like a sea, and it's also like glass. Well, a glass is not anything that moves; it's it's an object, whereas a sea, being liquid, moves. So, it also says mixed with fire. Well, how can fire mix with sea, which would seem to be made out of water? We don't understand. Whatever it was, John saw that this sea had these characteristics inside of it. It was something like glass. It was something like fire. It was something like a sea of water. Now, since John mentions it twice, this sea seems to be prominent and has some great significance. We just don't quite know what that is right now. First Corinthians thirteen, verse twelve. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part; then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now we don't know the whole story. We see things dimly. We have just a glimpse of heaven, and it's hard to understand. It's as though we're looking at a very poor mirror. Well, one day we will see the Lord and all these other things. Face to face, and when at that point in time you will have your questions answered. Although maybe you probably we still will have some questions that won't be answered right away, but we will know much, much more, and our comprehension will be far greater than it is now. It's something akin to a baby in the womb. You could talk to them. You could tell them what's outside. When my wife was pregnant, I could talk to my babies inside and say, "This is what the world is like. This is colors. Let me explain to you: red and green and yellow and blue and all these colors. Let me tell you what a tree is like and what the sea is like and what rivers are like." And I could explain all these things, but obviously they wouldn't be able to understand it. And even someone who's blind, who has a mature, fully functioning brain, there's many things that they would not be able to understand through your description. They would never be able to understand colors that you describe because they never had that experience, and it's like that with us right now. There are certain things about heaven which we can't understand, and we need to accept that. For some people, they want to know every detail: what is the sea, what is the glass, what is the fire, and they try to explain it. I don't think that we can, because our minds cannot grasp that now. It's beyond our experience and our understanding. We should, of course, be diligent to study the Word, to understand as much as we can know about the Lord, and we should seek enlightenment from the Spirit in these difficult to understand areas. But at the end, we also have to realize there are certain things we can't know right now, and we need to be content with that and be patient until we get there and know what it's like. I think as a parent, for the parents who are watching, you know what I'm talking about. When you're going on vacation and you're going to visit some destination, and the children keep asking, "What is it going to be like? And what are we going to see? And how is it going to be? And all of these questions." And you might just finally say, "You'll know when we get there. You'll see when we get there. You'll find out when we get there." And then you drive them, you take them, and when they get to the destination, then they know and they understand. Right now, it's like that with us. We will see and we will know when we get there. Now, I think this phrase in verse two is quite interesting. It says that those who conquered the beast in its image and the number of the of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, martyred saints will be there next to this sea in heaven with the Lord. 
Now, a description of them is given. Those who had conquered the beast. The beast gets its power from Satan himself. He and the false prophet will have very impressive supernatural powers. In addition to these powers, they will be backed up with the best technology the world has and the most powerful armies the world can provide. And yet believers will be able to overcome to overcome these powers of evil. How? Greater weapons, greater technology? No. It will not be a victory through force of arms. It will not be through sabotage. How will they overcome? Revelation 12:11 has the answer. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. By the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. They will conquer not through themselves but through the power of God. Only by looking to and clinging to Christ's work on the cross will believers be able to remain steadfast during this terrible time of persecution. Now the saints that conquer will almost be will mostly be martyred. But death is not losing. So this doesn't mean that they're going to kill the antichrist or they're going to kill Satan and they will live and, and no they're, they're going to conquer, but they're still going to be killed. Well, how is that conquering? It's conquering because through Christ's power, they will not give in. They will not take the mark of the beast. They will not worship the beast's image. They will, deny, they will not deny their faith. They will stand strong on the gospel and on the truth of God's word. That's winning. That's winning. Winning is following the Lord no matter what pressure you face. That's winning. Death is not losing. Winning is remaining faithful to God. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, for example, was furious with Daniel's three friends who would not bow to his idol. He was furious as his facial reaction changed. He wanted to throw them into the fire, the fire, the fiery furnace, and kill them. Well, in a similar way, the beast will be furious with those who he will be reigning over in this world but he still will not have absolute power over them. He does not have any power over their soul. Now, we don't know for sure we're going to face this. Uh, many believe there will be a rapture before this, but this is something that the Christian church is not uh, in total unity on because the Bible is not 100% clear uh, on this issue. So will you face it or not? We don't know, but if you did face that, or if you face something like it, persecution even before this happens, how can you stand up against it? How can you hope to stand when the persecution gets cranked up then if you don't stand when the persecution is small now? If you give up and if you compromise your faith, if you remain silent and refuse to speak up now with a little bit of peer pressure from another student, from a colleague, from a teacher, from a neighbor, from those around you who tell you, to, uh, who tell you to be quiet and don't share your faith with others, if you give in to that pressure now, then how can you hope to stand against much worse pressure in the future? He who's faithful in a little thing will be faithful also in much. How could you possibly train yourself or be trained for facing these things in the future? Be faithful to God today. 
All right, let's move forward. And we see here in verse 3 that there is a song of Moses and then there's a song of the Lamb. And part of this song is recorded here in verse 3 and 4. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Over and over in the book of Revelation, we see that in heaven, God's people will be singing his praise. Worship is a very important component of what we will be doing there. And in heaven, God will be worshipped the right way. He'll be worshipped the way that he wants to be worshipped. So it's a very useful study for us to study carefully the content of the songs recorded because these songs, which are going to be sung there in heaven, are certainly biblical songs which we could model today. Now here are a few observations about the worship which we see in this passage. First of all, it's very God-centric. It's focused on God. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. The focus, the whole focus of this is on God and not on man. It also mentions what he has done. Great and mighty, great and amazing are your deeds, what God's done. It mentions the goodness of his actions. Just and true are your ways. It mentions who he is. God's character is described and praised. And it encourages everyone to join in in praise says, all nations will come and worship you. So I'd like you to consider, how can you be a better worshiper of God? Is there something you need to do to adjust the way you worship God? Your heart, your motivations, or even the words that you say. Worship is not just corporate worship, 15 or 20 minutes on Sunday morning. Worship is a lifestyle of turning everything we receive, every blessing, even every challenge, Every answered prayer, we turn it back to God and we give it to Him in praise. We give Him glory for that. Let's consider how we can be a better worshiper of God, not just then in the future in heaven, but right now. Now verses 5 through 8 talks about the seven angels who are bringing the seven plagues. It says, After this I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. The sanctuary of the tent of witness. Now there are many names for the tabernacle in the Bible, including tabernacle of testimony, tent of meeting, sanctuary, and temple of the Lord. These are just a few. And it seems that this is another one. It says the sanctuary of the tent of witness. It seems to be a name for the tabernacle, but this is the heavenly tabernacle. Now each name depicts a different purpose or aspect of the tabernacle or the temple. The word sanctuary re- reminds us of its, of its holiness. It's a place for reverent worship of God. The word witness shows that it is a place to witness and learn of God's greatness. At the same time, it's a place to share with others testimonies praising the Lord. Now, the earthly tabernacle is actually a copy or a shadow of the heavenly one. We see this in Hebrews 8.5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. 
In other words, the, the tabernacle that Moses made in the wilderness was a copy of or a mini-scaled version of the one in heaven. So there is a heavenly temple. And it says that the angels will come out of this temple to unleash the last of the seven plagues. Seven angels coming out of the heavenly sanctuary of witness. This is a reminder that they're coming out of the sanctuary that the judgments they are bringing are holy and righteous. They're sent by a holy and righteous God. And those plagues will be a witness to the fact that God is not happy with the rebellion on earth. It's evident that these seven angels are directly commissioned by God for this task. It says their garments are pure, bright linen with golden sashes, just like the saints who overcome are also wearing pure, bright, white robes. This place doesn't mention that they're white, but very likely they are. Now when we think about it, we should remember that angels were also faced with temptation. Lucifer tried to seduce them and induce them to rebel against God. They had a choice to make. Those who chose to worship God, then they remained holy in the state he created them. Now the bowls are full of the wrath of God. It says, One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. In many ways, this wrath is being stored up. The longer God's patience goes and his wrath is held back, the more these bowls fill up. Even today, as the sins of the world grow high, more and more, drip, 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 comes God's wrath into the bowls. So we should be thankful right now, this, uh, this tide of judgment is being held back by God's mercy and God's patience. But one day, when the mercy and the patience is taken away, then the judgment is going to sweep in. You can imagine it's something like a dam holding back flood waters. The longer the flood waters are held back, then the area of the dam fills up higher and higher. The more torrential will be their release when the dam is released. These bowls are full, and the effects of these judgments will be extremely serious. It will not be a divine slap on the wrist. God says that he lives forever and ever. He existed long before man and his sin and reminded he's long-suffering. He is long-suffering, but one day that patience is going to run out. Moving on into verse 8, it says, The sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, smoke in this purpose, so sorry, smoke in this context seems to have several purposes. First, smoke conceals. The smoke will conceal the presence of God, reminding all creation of his glorious transcendence. Transcendence is a theological word that means God is very, very different than we are. He is separate from us. He is different from us. That smoke conceals him and it shows his holiness because where there's smoke, there's fire and fire represents perfection and purity. God is absolutely holy and the smoke also points to this. But smoke also depicts anger. 
the burning of God's wrath and his righteous anger, which is going to be unleashed against sin. What is the application for us? Whenever we study the Bible, we should say, what does this mean for us? Not not that it has different interpretations of what it means, but how do we apply it to our lives? And we need to remember, we do not serve a tame God. He's a righteous, holy, wrathful God, wrathful against sin. Remember the character of the God that you serve and let that let that dissuade you from following after sin in this world. No one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues were finished. Now through Christ we can approach the Father. However, here we see that occasionally it seems this physical access might not be 24-7. Will this restriction be forever removed when his judgment is complete or will there be times when God chooses to be alone, so to speak? We cannot be sure of the answers to those questions now. But this verse reminds us of God's holiness, his otherness. We are created in his image, but we are not holy like him. He is transcendent. He is different from us. At the same time, we do have access to his throne. We can have a relationship with him. And for that, we should be thankful. This also reminds us that these seven angels with these seven judgments are coming out from the presence of God. It's God who's going to unleash these judgments. Once that process is started, it cannot be stopped. No one can intervene. This matter is settled. It's almost as if it already happened. It is a great blessing for us that we can draw near into God's presence because of Christ. We are not locked away. We are not separated from him, but we can have a relationship with him. And we see that also in Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So in this chapter, let us remember that our God, yes, he's gracious and he's kind and we can come into his presence at the same time He is just and he is righteous and his patience with sin will not last forever. I hope that you enjoyed this study of Revelation chapter 15 and I would invite you to join us again next time as we study Revelation chapter 16. In the coming week, think how you can be a worshiper of God and how you can give God more glory and more respect, and more praise for who he is. And remember that he has the power over life, over death, and over our soul. So let us live to please him. Until next time, God bless. See you then. To see our entire library of over 800 Bible studies, please visit our website at www.studyandobey.com.